Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And today, we're going to talk about the failed peace in Ukraine, the resurgence of the Falklands dispute, the standoff going on between France and the Islamic world, and the potential for a possible Frexit from the EU. All that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news segment before we get into the meat. All right, so we have workers and students protesting Colombia over economic and social policies of President Ivan Duque. I believe that's how I pronounce that. There are locust swarms hitting Ethiopia amidst a civil war in the country where the Ethiopian government has apparently had an airstrike on the rebel group that has injured students, according to the rebels, in northern Tigray. And northern Tigray, if you look on a map, is... Well, if you look on, like, a province map of Ethiopia, is, like, the northernmost piece of the country. So, way up north, it has, like, a small border with Sudan, where people are fleeing from the area to avoid the war. And the fighting there have as of now, is entering its third week. We'll, we'll see how that develops, and whether or not Egypt could use it against Ethiopia. I'll try to remember that. That is not in my notes, but I just thought of that. Saudi Arabia is set to invest approximately $5 billion U.S. dollars. Uh, it's a lot more in their own currency. They're set to invest $5 billion U.S. dollars in artificial intelligence projects, says Reuters. And a universe, uh, a universe, an Oxford University develops COVID vaccine with a 70% effective rate. So that's good news for Britain. We'll see whether or not that has any impact on their plans for a lockdown. And where that brings us in 2021, where we have three vaccines, technically, well, actually four, counting the Russian vaccine. So we'll see where all that goes. Yemen is heading towards a famine, uh, likely due to major food-producing nations uh, being on lockdown and shuttering their economies. And that is on top of the civil war in Yemen, uh, where the government is fighting the Houthi rebels, which are backed by Iran. Yemen, the government of Yemen, is backed by Middle Eastern players in the United States. So, a bit of a proxy war between them and Iran. And, well, now there's a famine on the way. France, Germany, Italy, and the UK say they are ready to sanction entities that try to obstruct the peace process in Libya. Now, I brought up, uh, I think it was either last episode or the episode before that, that Libya, who is another nation, yet another one in the midst of a civil war right now, they were going to hold elections for a new government, those elections are going to be held in December 24th, I believe. Um, and if I had to guess, they're probably not going to end well. You know, countries that are fighting each other aren't likely going to accept a result of an election. 
countries that aren't fighting itself are having issues with an election right now. Cough, cough, America. <laughs> so, I don't expect much to come from that other than more fighting. But for the me, but in the meantime, it appears that there's been like a, a minor drawdown of the violence. So that's good. Um, Russia. We'll get into Russia in just a minute. But I want to go back to uh, Ethiopia for a second before I forget. Because, again, this was not in my notes. I thought of this while I was recording. Uh, and that is the potential for this war, this civil war in Ethiopia, to be taken advantage of by Egypt. Now, for those of you who don't know, Egypt is very dependent on the Nile River. And one of the tributaries into the Nile River, one of the two main rivers that go into the, the Nile, is the White Nile and the Blue Nile. And I can't remember which one specifically comes from Ethiopia. I believe it is the Blue Nile and the other, the White Nile, comes from uh, Sudan. Ethiopia has built a dam on its piece of the Nile, and Ethiopia is upriver, so the water goes through them first before it gets to Egypt. They are building a dam, and it's called the Renaissance Dam, and it's projected to shave off a, a quarter to a third of the arable farmland in Egypt. I believe I brought that up. I believe I brought this up a couple episodes ago, but it just hit me now that with the fighting going on in Ethiopia right now that appears that is broken out, it could be taken advantage of by Egypt, who, with a population of 100 million people, probably doesn't want a famine of its own on its hands or just reduced crop production, uh, pr productivity in terms of food, because that's a probably a major source of income for them. I'm not entirely sure specifically what uh, percentage of trade that that breaks down to, but given Egypt's history as being a breadbasket, food is probably up there. And uh, aside from the economics, you don't want your people to starve. So we could see potential interference in this civil war in Ethiopia by... Uh, Egypt, so that they can try to sabotage the dam. Now, I don't think that the northern Tigray region is too close to the dam, but if the fighting were to spread from that region, uh, you could see the potential for Egyptian, in Egyptian interference in this civil war to sabotage that dam so that Egypt's water supply doesn't get cut or strangled and held hostage by a foreign government. So the matters of national security for Egypt, we'll see where that we'll see where that goes. I wanted to expand on that while I, it was still fresh in my head, but now uh, we can get we can transition from the rapid fire news into more of the meat. All right, and we'll start with good old Russia. Good old Russia. Russia is not planning new COVID restrictions. And this is amidst a second wave panic going on across Europe and the United States, partially. Yeah, again, it's a bit of a partisan issue in the United States. But 
uh, amidst the wave of new lockdowns in Europe, uh, Russia is not planning any new COVID restrictions. So they're bucking the trend. And uh, in, in the midst of that, Venezuela is in talks with Russia for open commercial air travel. So we're already starting to see co- countries who are on the brink begin uh, throwing COVID to the wayside in favor of economic recovery. Now, Russia is still a European nation. So the whole trend I noticed uh, with regards to Europeans letting other European nations um, set the precedent before they move in on issues that are a bit divisive, it could apply here too. You could see it and it's likely to start it's likely to be taken up more so by the Eastern European nations before the West. We'll see where that goes. The East, There's a bit of a split between the Eastern Europe and Western Europe. So, we'll see where that goes. And on to the failed peace in the Ukraine, while we're still talking about Russia, because this is going to be very relevant to them. Ukraine has failed to meet the goals outlined by the Normandy Quartet in a Paris summit over the fighting in Ukraine. Now, the Normandy Quartet is, uh, I believe, France, Germany, Russia, and the United Kingdom. For some reason, it is not in... For some reason, the list isn't on my notes, but I did remember them, thank goodness. So... The Normandy Quartet came to an agreement uh, last year for a ceasefire. Well, an agreement between the Ukrainian government and the rebels in eastern Ukraine, you know, the Donetsk and Lugansk uh, regions of Ukraine. Those are the uh, provinces in the Ukraine that are right hard up against the Russian border, Um, like as, as close to Russia as you can get. If you if you were to look at a map, there's like a indentation uh, it, from Ukraine into Russia, and the farthest east in Ukraine you can go. Those are the two provinces we're talking about here. It's where the fighting has been for the past couple of years since the annexation of Crimea, and it's been ongoing. And last year, this uh, Normandy Quartet tried to come to an agreement. Or get the rather get the Ukraine and the rebels to agree on four terms, which were agreed to last year: a ceasefire, a disengagement of forces, a complete exchange of all prisoners of war, and the opening of more checkpoints along the disengagement line. So those four terms were agreed to, and they're still fighting. So it's basically null and void. At this point, but the summit back then also advocated for limited self-governance of the provinces of Donetsk and Lugansk. And what we could be seeing, not not necessarily right now, but we could be seeing the potential for this to be grounds like international law grounds for Russian intervention in the future. Russia's tied down right now in securing the Caucasus. They just arrived in the Caucasus. We, I, It was the main title of last week's episode. But 
And uh, I did mention in that episode that the other members of the former Soviet Union were up next. And I brought up the Baltic Trio, the Ukraine, and Central Asia. And I believed that the Ukraine was going to be next on that list of re- of reconquests, so to speak. With the Baltics likely to be last, unless something significant happened that undermined the very idea of NATO. Which could be the lockdowns. It could be the, e- the fallout economically from the lockdowns that could cripple Europe and keep them from intervening at all. So, that's another thing that just popped up in my mind right now, as Europe is going through this second wave of lockdowns, the European nations that have the economy to build a military worthy of the name to potentially stop a Russian deployment of troops into the Baltics, they're going to be crippled economically. And we saw what the Great Depression did to the Western European nations when Germany was resurgent. Now, I'm not necessarily comparing Russia to World War II Germany, but the situation could end up being similar where Western Europe is in a position of object weakness and in really can't fight the Russians. Where Russia, who is not imposing new COVID restrictions and is in fact opening up commercial air travel with countries like Venezuela, they could be going through a recovery right now, which will mean that they will be in a relative position better off than the other nations. And we're already seeing that they're flexing their muscles in the former Soviet space. They're making moves while their competitors are down. So whenever Russia feels that they have the Caucasus on lockdown, and I, I know I said that they had it on lockdown last time, but when they really consolidated their control over the Caucasus and made their presence uh, a bit more permanent, we could see them... Uh, actually move in to the Ukraine. Now, I brought that up in my first episode that I believed that Russia could sweep across the Ukraine relatively quickly, or they could lose, quote-unquote, lose a couple hundred thousand men and a couple hundred tanks and lose a couple hundred planes and lose a couple hundred thousand barrels of fuel. And magically, the Ukraine problem is solved. And they, Ukraine, unanimously, under the governments of Luhansk and Donetsk, decide to secede the entire country to Russia. We have recorded evidence now that I have said this. That's number two. We'll see if I'm right. I hope. I think I am. But we'll see where this goes. Because, again, the other members of this Normandy Quartet are weak right now. They can't really intervene, and there's also geography in the way. None of them have like a direct border with the Ukraine where Russia does. So if anything were to happen with this peace agreement falling apart, Russia could just blame the Ukrainian government and send in a quote-unquote aid or a quote-unquote peacekeeping force, and they'll just drop them behind. The Ukrainian line, the Ukrainian Air Force is already non-existent because of the Russian anti-air batteries, S-300s at the time, S-400s now, and coming S-500s. 
Russia could move in there. And it's looking like they will be given a perfect excuse to do just that. If Ukraine is failing to meet this agreement, well, it's likely a more of a both sides thing, but we know, we can assume that Russia's going to blame, they're going to pin the blame an undue amount of the blame on the Ukraine. The other Western powers in this agreement will protest, but if they're in economic turmoil and Russia is in a recovery, whether they're at full strength or not, it's the relative position that matters. If Russia's going through a recovery at that point in the game, whenever that may be, if it happens at all, they could be in a position to act where the others won't. And it would it would literally be similar, almost identical to the situation with Germany in World War II, where Britain and France were not even rearming yet, where Germany was had a large army and started demanding areas that were ethnic German or former German territories, and they got what they wanted because the other nations couldn't risk war with Germany. Or at least that's what they felt at the time. We could be looking at a similar situation here playing out, and but instead of ethnic Germans, you could be seeing Russia lay claims to ethnic Russian lands, or historic Russian territory. And the Ukraine is on the top of that list. And I mentioned in my first episode that Moldavia and Transitria, I didn't mention Transitria because I didn't know its name, but Transitria and Moldavia could be next because there was a bit of a civil war that was fought and the pro Kremlin loyalists won and you we could see them willingly go along with whatever the Russians ask so dominoes basically if Ukraine falls Russia gets a free hand and from there uh, they their Baltic Sea, not their Baltic Sea, the Black Sea periphery is completely secure. They would have the Caucasus, they would have Crimea, and the rest of Ukraine. They would have the Don River area, and all of the Ukraine's food-producing region, along with an additional 40 million people under their command. Very, very important. Um, the pipelines, their gas pipelines that go through the Ukraine would then be under direct Russian control, meaning they don't have to pay the Ukraine to move oil and gas to them. They just pay... They would be able to interface directly with their end market in Europe. So that's a potential big gain that the Russians could make just based off the situation that we could be looking at in the near future. Now, we get into the big, the big story. The big story. And that is France, again, we're looking at France, because France is looking at banning homeschooling. Now, this new piece of legislation, sponsored by Emmanuel Macron, uh, this legislation, which was proposed last Wednesday, is meant to fight Islamic extremism in France. Now, if passed, um, it would make the teaching of children at home... Well, uh, it would make the teaching of children at home a crime. And there was about 50,000 homeschooled children in France as of now. 
which means all the people teaching them would effectively become criminals overnight. Force, which would kind of give the government more control over their population in that you would have to go to state-approved schools, but it's probably a risk that they're willing to go through because they feel that they are under attack by Islamic radicals. Now, France is also looking at empowering local schools to resist demands to tone down sexual or religious education, uh, those demands coming from predominantly Muslim groups. And my notes on that is that France is now in, not heading towards, they are in a confrontation with Islam. They are now at odds with even the EU. Um, well, they're more at odds with the EU. There was uh, There's another thing that they're at odds with the EU about that's going to bring up my Brexit, not Brexit, Frexit topic later on. But one of the things that they're at odds with the EU over on this specific issue um, is the EU is concerned about press freedom. If you're going to be cracking down on basically Islam as a whole within France. And France is currently setting precedent. And I say that they're currently setting precedent because I mentioned this, that one of my observations personally about Europe is that they don't like to act by themselves or on their own. They don't like to act first on particular issues that are divisive or controversial within their countries. However, when another European nation does it, or if you are simply put in a position where you can't avoid it anymore, you have no choice but to address the issue, the way in which the European nation responds to these uh, issues and the solutions that they come up with those set precedent. They set precedent across Europe because from that point onwards, European nations will then go, look, they did this, so now we're going to do it. Or they're cracking down, and so then they will feel that it's okay for them to crack down as well. So it's kind of an unofficial thing, and... A very interesting observation that I've noted about Europe in general, that they kind of act like uh, states in the United States where certain things will be done. And if it gets challenged by like, and if it gets challenged and taken to like the Supreme Court, it sets precedent for the rest of the nation. But uh, this is a much more unofficial version of that, where if say, and I'll use Greece as an example... Um, when Greece, uh, well, actually, no, not even Greece, but when Hungary put up a border fence to keep the migrants that were coming from Syria and the Middle East out of Hungary and they were going into Western Europe instead, that set precedent. Because from that point onward, you saw more and more European nations uh, asserting border security and asserting sovereignty of their nation. You saw Brexit. You saw Greece putting up a, a border fence uh, when Turkey uh, basically sponsored the thousands of migrants that were chilling out on their side of the border to walk into Europe and Greece stopped them. And the precedent had been set at that point 
because immediately after Greece did that, the EU stood in solidarity with them rather than condemning them. Now, the EU didn't exactly do much other than say that they were in solidarity with Greece, but that had marked a dramatic turn from we'll accept everyone and you're a racist if you don't want them. And now we're seeing France take a harsh stance on Islam, taking that whole concept of border security against migrants primarily from the Middle East, which is a predominantly Islamic region. You're seeing now France take a stance against Islam, which could, and I'm, I know it's not necessarily a given, and it's more of an observation, but it could lead to other nations in Europe following along. And, well, I imagine the British see this as an unmitigated positive because if France is going to be taking a harsher stance on their border security and a harsher stance against Islamic um, immigrants in general, well, that means they're not going to be walking through France and then crossing the English Channel into Britain. So, it's an unmitigated positive for the British that the French are taking their borders more seriously now. And we'll see where the rest of Europe goes, because now you have Britain and France and Hungary and Greece and Poland on the same page. So we'll see where the rest of Europe goes. There's Matteo Salvini in Italy, who is also a strong proponent of border security. And when he was in charge, Italy stopped accepting migrants. He's not in charge right now, but he's still there. So Italy is accepting migrants. And Italy, the Italians aren't happy about it. So we could see a wave of not just anti-migrant sentiments in Europe becoming the norm. We could see anti-Islam become the norm across Europe. And that, well, that could revive the great religious rivalry and i'll get into that in just a minute all right all right we're back and on to the great religious rivalry now this isn't like a major point or anything that was just where i decided to leave off but we could be seeing another resurgence of an old rivalry on the horizon and that is the rivalry between christianity and islam now as you know the middle east is a predominantly Islamic region. Who would have thought? And with Turkey on the rise again, and Islam have being openly hostile towards many European nations and their ethics and cultures, it's a bit of a clash of cultures going on. And France, now taking a hard line, they are a major European nation, taking a hard line against Islam, we could be seeing, again, with the whole precedent thing that I mentioned before, we could be seeing a Europe-wide uh, anti-Islamic sentiment just sweep across the continent and initiate a rivalry that has been really dormant for the past couple of decades. And now while france isn't openly christianity christianity jesus 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 just yet poland kind of is poland and hungary 
um, have openly stated that they don't want Islamic migrants, and Poland in particular accepted Christian migrants from Ukraine into Poland. They have a land border where they rejected Muslim migrants. So, again, you have another instance of precedent being set. It's controversial now. May not be controversial in the future because of that precedent, that unofficial precedent rule. And with France being a the first major European nation to start taking a bit of a hard stance against Islam, it could, it could the anti-Islamic sentiment could become contagious across Europe, igniting an, a centuries-old rivalry between the Christian Europe and Muslim Middle East and North Africa. Who who knows? Maybe maybe they'll send. Maybe we'll see an, another. Another crusade. There we go. That's the word I was looking for. Maybe we'll see another crusade where they'll try to take back the Holy Land from Turkey. They have Israel. They already have Israel. So that, that'll be something potential to look out for. Maybe in the far future. Okay. I don't think that they have the capacity. Europe. I don't think Europe has the capacity to go fighting a war against the Middle East right now. Especially with the lockdowns. But that rivalry could pop up later in like mid or late century who knows it was an interesting thing that i noted but we're going to move on to more things concerning france and that is uh we'll go back to the nagorno karabakh war now france in the aftermath of russia settling ending the argument really by just throwing 400 men into the region france wants international supervision out of fear over potential Turkish influence. Now, Turkey is being allowed to have uh, monitoring stations and a small presence in Azerbaijan, which is a Turkish ally. And Russia says that uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan can pursue whatever foreign relations that they want. But, you know, it's really hard to take that seriously when Russia has 400 men occupying both countries and controlling the roadways and railroads in and out of them. So, you know, friend, uh, Turkey's influence is mitigated, if not canceled out entirely, by Russia's presence in the region and the fact that Turkey has to go through uh, Armenia to get to Azerbaijan which means going through Russian checkpoints to get into the country. And Turkey's not going to be flying in anything that the Russians don't want into the region because Russia has some of the best air defense systems in the world. And you're talking the mountainous regions of the Caucasus. You're, you're never going to see those batteries just chilling out on the wrong side of a mountain and your aircraft gets shot down if the Russians don't want you there. Russia has all the cards here. And now France wants to basically try to stay involved in the region. And more so they want a international supervision in the Caucasus. Uh, they say it's out of fear of Turkish influence in the region. Because Russia has allowed Turkey to have troops in Azerbaijan. But the whole international supervision thing yeah russia will have none of that 
Russia will have absolutely none of it. They just secured one of their weak points, really, the Caucasus. They have it on, they're locking it down as we speak. Now, we'll see if that troop number rises to anything higher, or if they're able to pacify the region with just that. But Russia holds all the cards, and out of the Minsk group, there is, which is France, Russia, and America, France wants international intervention. Russia's not going to have that because Russia owns the region, and America doesn't care. They're preoccupied. Uh, America's not coming. America is not part of this party. And France has no way in anyway. Now, uh, France, yeah, I, meant, I brought that they're all part of the Minsk group. Turkey is not a part of the Minsk group. Minsk, it's a named after a city in Belarus. Just France, America, and Russia. But the group is basically uh, null and void and useless now because Russia owns the Caucasus. And they brokered a deal with someone outside of the Minsk group which, to end the fighting in the Caucasus, which really renders that group null and void, especially when France can't do anything about it and when the Americans are unwilling to do anything about it. So, that far-flung, uh, it's another example of a far-flung international agreement breaking down uh, into a, the control of regional powers. And another example of America refusing to be everywhere at once, like it has been since really the end of World War II. So, you have that. And, again, Turkey is still the big loser here, because you only got in because of Russia, and Russia could kick them out at any moment, because they control all the ways in. So... Uh, look out for what Turkey does to their southern neighbors. Uh, that's all I'll say. That's all I'll say. That's what we're going to be on the lookout for here. And by we, I mean me. <laughs> but on to more about France. And yes, they are all over this episode. A potential Frexit, that is French exit, incoming. Is it coming? Uh, there's evidence to suggest that it could be. And this latest round of discontent comes after a dispute with the EU over a rise in the salaries of public hospital workers in France. Now, the nationalist, the nationalist Eurosceptic party, uh, Les Patriotes, uh, Les Patriotes, not entirely sure how I pronounce that, but I'm going to call them the Patriots. <laughs> Uh, they put out a poll on Twitter calling for an immediate alliance of Frexiteers, yes or no. Uh, and out of the 2,227 respondents, 92% of them said yes. So that's nearly 2,000, if not over 2,000. Not entirely sure how the numbers break down specifically, but that's a considerable portion of the people in the survey saying yes. Now, uh preface that by saying that it's likely skewed in favor of saying yes, uh, most likely due to the following of this nationalist Eurosceptic party. People who are going to follow them on Twitter are likely already going to have an anti-EU position, so take the poll results with a grain of salt, but 
it does indicate a growing discontent, the fact that they have that many people on their Twitter saying, well, participating in this poll and saying no overwhelmingly. And it's it does indicate the growing discontent within France over the EU. The former minister, and this is more evidence to the potential of a possible Frexit, which could just rock the world of the European Union as a whole, the former minister of industrial renewal, Arnaud Monteberg, ooh yeah, Arnaud Monteberg, he said that France, get this, he said that France must no longer defend Europe before France. Now that's a very powerful statement. That's a that's a big statement and probably caught the attention of many uh people in Brussels who obviously are pro EU and likely don't want France, another major European nation, to leave the Union. But on top of that, another French politician, this is a sitting French politician, not a former minister, but a sitting French politician by the name of Geoffrey Bolly, he responded to the France must no longer defend Europe before France. He responded to that by saying the safest way to do this is through Frexit. Let's join the British in concert in the concert of free nations outside the EU. That is a sitting member of the French government saying we should do Frexit. We should be out there with Britain outside of the EU. And that is that's a wombo combo right there. That's a wombo combo. Cause he's sitting. He has the power to help push that idea along. And Macron is increasingly at odds with the EU over his policies, uh, his crackdown against Islam. We could see tension, we could see not necessarily tensions over whether or not to remain in the EU, or whether or not you like the EU in France, but more so, does being a part of the EU compromise our security? That could be the question that leads France to a Frexit. Not even whether or not they want to be a... Not whether or not they feel that being in the EU, uh, the benefits outweigh the detriments, but rather, does it compromise our security staying in the EU if we're going to have to put up with Islamic extremism? And it seems increasingly that if such a question were to be raised before the French people... The answer to that question of whether or not it's worth staying is going to be no. Emmanuel Macron admitted a while back that if France had held a referendum like Britain did, the French would have voted to leave, and that was back then. What do you think is going to happen now? How far do you think that that sentiment may have advanced? Is it going to be a almost 50-50 split like it was in Britain? And then evolve into a landslide victory to get Brexit done? Or is it going to start off as a landslide and remain a landslide?
We don't know. We'll see if they have a referendum that makes it to the floor of their parliament. But for now, France is occupied with cracking down on Islam. And as far as the EU is concerned, I mentioned the perpetual secession crisis that the EU would have to deal with following Brexit. And here you go. Here you go. France is on deck. Italy is on deck. These are two major European nations that are on deck for secession. And France, and I brought up that nations within the EU would look to Britain, seeing, oh, they're doing fine outside of the EU. As a matter of fact, they're, they're, they're growing, they're prospering. So why are we here with all these restrictions on what we can and can't do? They don't have those restrictions. Why are we here? We should leave too. You, I said that we were going to see that, and they, that French minister just brought it up, saying we should join the British in the concert of free nations outside the EU. The secession pr- crisis is upon us, and by us, I mean the EU. And as nations secede, I also brought up that they are going to look to Britain almost reflexively for a trade deal. Now, Britain is going to look to its former colonies and nations that it's friendly with. It's, it already has a trade deal on deck with Canada and Kanzuk in the works. But once Britain is out and they've got their footing, every nation that leaves the EU after that is going to immediately, um, reflexively look to Britain for a trade deal. Making the British economy stronger making their post-Brexit position better and only fueling greater secessionist sentiment from the EU. The secession crisis is upon us and it's going to snowball out of control. The EU may end up being the Holy Roman Empire of our time. Now that is a very big claim that I've made, but the evidence... And the sentiments of the people uh, appears to be moving in that direction. And I'm merely just talking about what I can observe. We could be seeing the collapse of the EU. And a resurgence of, well, nationalism and populism. And the return to the age of empires. Because once France leaves, if they do, well, they're not going to want to be beholden to the whims of foreign governments for their economic needs. Especially if uh, security is no longer a given. I mean, you can see the number of civil wars in these countries. You saw that there was a fully-fledged war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Violence is increasingly on the table. Russia just threw 400 men into the Caucasus and and settled the conflict. Force deployment is on the table again. And it will remain so and will become increasingly more prevalent as nations are forced to take care of themselves. Every nation that leaves the EU is going to have to look out for their own security. Which means they're going to have to build a military. 
which means that they'll eventually find themselves in a situation where they need to use a military. Well, regardless of if they have one or not, they're going to find themselves in a situation where they need a military. But if they have to take care of themselves, that military will be there and it will be worthy of the name. France will be no different. Italy will be no different. Italy, depending on whenever they leave and get their bearings together, could find themselves in a conflict with Turkey over the eastern Mediterranean and Turkish claims over Greek islands. France, could you could see a recolonization of Algeria. We, we could really see it. The, the British are already going for a, a peaceful, economic, and semi-political union with, with the Anglosphere. Minus America, but they're going to have a trade deal with America. If Trump gets into office, that is. Which he still has a path to do. But until December 14th, I will be completely ignoring the U.S. election. Because it's too much. That is, it's too much. So I'll just sit back and enjoy the show. But we could be seeing something really big happen in Europe right now. And... Well, if the European Union goes, that will be another international agreement on the ropes. Well, it, it already is on the ropes, the EU. And if it goes, that would, another international agreement that is dead. As international law becomes increasingly worthless. Increasingly worthless. And... It, at first, it was just the really, really big nations like America and Russia and China that would violate international law and get away with it. But now you're going to see the Europeans get in on the take. You're going to see Turkey is already in on the take. Arabia is already in on the take. And these are the upper powers and the lower to mid-tier powers that are in on the take. So what happens when the major economies of Europe remilitarize and start to behave well as though international law meant nothing to them international law will cease to exist no but that is france and the goings-on in france and europe are gonna have major implications on the world moving forward but while we're still on the subject of europe Let's talk about the UK. Now, the UK uh, and Argentina, as you may know, have disputes over who owns the Falklands. The Falklands saga continues because Argentina is continuing to lay its claim to the island. Argentina claims, uh, or well, Argentina's claims uh, use the UK's commitment to finding a peaceful solution to the dispute uh, against the UK. It also uses the 2065 UN resolution, which formally recognized the dispute uh, to, make them, to make their case. Now, Argentine officials have said that they hope to see the flag fly over the island soon. Now, these are some powerful words. I don't know if Argentina has the military to back the Well, they don't. But they're not using military, they're going to use diplomacy. And what we're going to see pretty soon is a coming test 
of the current strength of international law. Or not necessarily the strength of it, but rather the commitment of nations who can ignore it to it. And in case that sounds a bit confusing, we're going to see a test of whether or not nations who can ignore international law uh, are going to keep themselves beholden to international law when that law does not work in their favor. Will Britain join the club of countries that don't care what the international community says when it comes to personal issues, that is? Well, every nation's in favor of international law when it's on someone else's, when it's to someone else's detriment, particularly a nation that they don't like. But will they hold up that end of the deal when it's them? Now, if this was the 1900s, or like even up to 1990, or even 2000, I would say that their answer to that question would be yes, they'll concede. But, well, that was, you know, the decolonization fever. But, with this increasing need to assert sovereignty and the general sentiment of Brexit and not being beholden to supranational institutions being a key component, we could see Britain say, no, the island is ours. The island is ours and the matter is settled. That's what I believe is going to happen when this confrontation eventually happens. Britain But uh, regardless of how I feel, they're going to be faced with the choice. Will they follow along with international law, or will Britain go its own way? And I believe the British are going to go their own way. Because if Kanzuk does pan out, the Falklands are going to be a key staging... uh, Not necessarily a staging ground, but a key uh, midway point between the United Kingdom itself... And Australia and New Zealand, a point that the British would control, a member of Kanzuk would have control over versus going through the Panama Canal. That would be of strategic importance for trade within the new British Empire. I mean, I mean, Kanzuk. I mean, uh, yes, Kanzuk. So I don't think they're going to give it up. They, They haven't given it up so far. The best chance that there was of the UK surrendering the Falklands was back during decolonization fever, but they haven't done that. So now that that fever is over and we are entering a period where recolonization and colonization in general is going to be the theme of major nations who feel that they need to, uh, they're not going to give up that island. I don't, I don't see it. That's my thoughts, but the choice will be there regardless. But now, my general thoughts on what uh, what we've gone over today. I'll get into those closing thoughts in just a minute. Uh, yeah. All right, all right, we're back and on to the my closing thoughts before we end out today's episode. And I'll start with some of my. I'll start with this note right here. Uh, some of my favorite notion, 
notions. Some of my favorite nations to look out for uh, have been traditionally Russia, Turkey, followed by China, America, and a little bit of the UK ever since uh, Brexit happened. Those have been the key players that I've kept my eye on. They've traditionally been the ones to make the moves. Turkey, more recently, have been started to make moves. And the coup that happened, I think it was in 2016, uh, the coup that failed to oust Erdogan, uh, that really started to catch my attention, personally. But those have been the traditional, those five countries have been the ones I've kept my eye on. But now... France, as you can tell by the last couple episodes, France has gotten very interesting very fast. And it's astonishing how I've basically done two episodes now where France is just the centerpiece. And I really don't know what to say. But with all the moving parts that are in motion that France is particularly is involved in, there's the Middle East, there's Turkey, uh, the Middle East with the whole Islamic crackdown, and that's not going to go over well with them. There's They involved themselves in the Eastern Mediterranean when they basically sent out their destroyers to bully Turkey into backing down. There was their relations with Russia. France has been trying to uh, build better relations with Russia and work with Russia, uh, and the Russians have kind of giving them a cold shoulder, uh, you know, uh, I remember Macron tried to basically go to Putin and say that Russia is European nation, and they should work with other European nations, and France tried to be there for Russia in the Caucasus, uh, against Turkey, then there's the EU, where France is increasingly at odds with what the EU wants, uh, whether that's migrants, whether that's uh, the dispute going on between them over the increase in salaries in French public hospitals, or if it's now the crackdown on Islam. France is increasingly at odds with the EU, which brings in a whole bunch of other nations into the mix. There's the British-French relationship, uh, which is kind of a renewed rivalry at this point due to what France was doing with migrants were uh, a couple months back where the British had paid France to keep migrants from crossing the channel, but they didn't do that. And France then went on to take a harsh stance on uh, fisheries, which was something that the British were taking a hard stance on. So, you know, the whole sovereignty thing. So we're seeing a return of that old British-French rivalry, the geopolitical kind. And France, through all of this, and all of the... uh, Kind of all the interactions it has through the actions it's taken with all these other nations and regions of the world, the, you know, the interesting parts of the world, France is unintentionally helping to usher in the next era. An era of great power competition. And with that era will come a new paradigm. And in the, where the chips fall now will determine who will dominate the next few decades and potentially even the rest of the 21st century. 
And the question as of right now, in these chaotic days where uh, we don't know what the F is going on anymore, the theme of 2020 really, uh, the question, in my mind at least, covering this is, who will it be? Who Who's going to be the next hegemon? Whether that's regional or, or super regional, I don't think we're going to have like a global hegemon, uh, at least not right now. I don't think we're going to have a global hegemon, uh, but regional hegemons are going to be the theme of the day. And the question is, who's it going to be? Is it going to be France, Turkey, China? China is making a really strong bid for their region. And Turkey could dominate the Middle East, uh, especially if their opposition is crippled by COVID. And that same thing could happen for Russia, where they could dominate the former Russian Empire because the countries that would stop them are crippled by COVID. The COVID lockdown specifically. The vaccines are here. It's the lockdowns that are going to kill countries. Or will it be them? Will America find it in itself to involve itself somewhere it doesn't want to be again? Or or will the EU make a comeback from the decline that it's currently plaguing it? Uh, who knows? Will the new powers rise from the fall of the EU? And how will those players interact with each other? We really don't know. It'll be interesting to watch, but it's a really big unknown. Something to look forward to, something maybe to be afraid of, depending on where you stand. But uh, we're seeing the beginnings of something new. Something, something we've only heard about in our history books and history documentaries. Something that none of us have really experienced, myself included. Uh, I'll get to experience what an isolationist America looks like, and other people will get to experience what it feels like to be uh, an empire. And then others will feel what it's like to be a subject, a colonial subject of said empire. But, all that aside, it's going to be very, very, very interesting to look out for, especially as things either settle down or maybe become more chaotic for the rest of the decade. Uh, uh, who knows how things will shake out. But what we do know is that we're approaching the end of today's episode. And that is all I have for you today. So I, I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast and as i say every time and as we can see before with our own eyes the world is changing and we are going to have fun watching it together or the very or i hope we're gonna have fun i don't, I don't know about you but <laughs> i hope we're gonna have fun <laughs> so uh that's it I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, servus.